Good morning, Grace. Turn with me in your Bibles to our scripture reading this morning in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Hebrews, chapter 9. Again, we are in Hebrews, chapter 9. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 14. That first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was a second room called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the Ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of divine glory, whose wings stretched out over the ark's cover, the place of atonement. But we cannot explain these things in detail now. When these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed the religious duties. But only the high priest ever entered the most holy place, and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins of the people, uh, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. This is an illustration pointing to the present time. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciousness they're the conscience of the people who bring them. For that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered the greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of the created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our conscience from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you for that perfect sacrifice that you offered. Lord, you offered your own son so that we may have a relationship with you. You tore down the old system, one of complete separation and one of only partial healing, Lord, so that we may have full healing. We may have full redemption. Full salvation in your eyes, Lord. Lord, we thank you for that sacrifice. Lord, we thank you for your word that has described it to us so perfectly and so beautifully. And Lord, as we continue on in our service today, I ask that you would come uh, be with us, be in the midst of us, be in the center of us. Help us to focus on just you this morning, Lord. As Pastor Doug comes and, and preaches your word, we ask that we would hear from you. Lord, please go with us this morning and be with us this whole day and this whole week. Lord, take all of the challenges in our life and help us to meet them with your strength. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you already have kept your finger in that passage, I ask that once again you would turn to Hebrews chapter 9. I've given to you in the bulletin and hopefully what will come up on the screen here, there it is, and a little bit of a diagram of some of the items that were spoken of in this particular chapter, particularly in the first five verses. But we want to be careful because in verse five, the last phrase says, we're not going to take a lot of time on this. Paraphrasing it, we're going to maybe touch base on this a little bit later. But what we are finding out is that in this center section of the book of Hebrews, in chapter 7 through chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews is continually forcing us toward a wonderful realization of the superiority of Jesus Christ as our high priest. And we also realize, too, that this particular chapter deals with an issue that all of us, at one time or another, or maybe even today, is struggling with. The issue is our conscience. Our conscience. We have a guilty conscience. No matter how young or how old you prove you might prove to be, the fact is all of us understands the idea or the sense of guilt. People may try to urge us away from this by suggesting that this is something of unhealthiness. They may suggest that the consciousness is nothing more than an aberration, that it is an externally understood thing, that it has no basis, really, in the creative purposes of God. They even say there is no God. But the fact remains that each of us understands that the Bible tells us that a conscience is a facility which enables us to apprehend both that which is good and that which is bad. There are times that we can harden our conscience as we have already seen in our study of previous months that the children of Israel had hardened, if you will, their conscience to the fact that they're not even growing. They don't want to know anymore. But still in the factor of God has created us, we have a sense of guilty that hangs over our heads. When I was younger, much younger, I spent summers at my grandparents' house, their farm. Theirs wasn't a dairy farm, it was a chicken farm. My grandfather raised chickens for Kentucky Fried Chicken, thus one of my favorite restaurants of extra crispy 
with mashed potatoes, gravy, biscuits, and of course, they serve very good, if you will, salad. Now that I've got you all hungry, let's close in prayer. <laughs> but we have this sense as one day, as my, my grandfather had a habit, and a good habit it was, that in the far right corner of a cabinet, there was a, an old coffee can. My, my grandfather didn't drink a lot of coffee, but he had an old coffee can that periodically I would see him put coins in that can. Well, one day when my grandfather was out in the barn, uh, a six-story barn, if you will, with about 120,000 chickens in it, I was left alone in the house. My grandmother was an area representative of Avon, and she traveled all over the place, something that I don't even want to become involved in. But that one day, I thought I would investigate that can. I opened that cupboard, reached up there and pulled the lid off, and it was full of half dollars. And I think you know where I'm going with this. I, I reached into that can and I took out two or three of those and I was going to deposit them in my pocket. But at that moment, my grandfather walked in the kitchen door. Talk about getting caught with your hand in the cookie jar. What are you doing? I just looked at this can. I wanted to see what was in it. I started to count them. Grandpa, I wasn't going to steal them. And all he said was, that's good. But he didn't know my conscience. That bothered me for days. Until I had to confess to him that I had planned on taking at least five or six. We all have those moments. Consciousness. We have this guilt that looms over our heads of a cloud that cannot be dispelled in and of our own strength. And that's why the writer of Hebrews and chapter 9 begins in the first five verses by laying out for us the diagram that these Hebrew Christians would have known very, very well. In reality, there are three main areas of this particular what's called the tabernacle of God. It was a portable, if you will, movable place of worship that the children of Israel were guided by God, given specific stipulations as to who was going to carry it, how it was going to be made, and when it was going to stop and rest for a time of worship. But in it, as you can see, not only on the screens, but in the diagram you have, there are three main areas. We have what's called the outer court. In the outer court, you will find what is called the 
the, blaze, the brazened altar, or is it listed here, the altar of burnt offerings. And that was a place that individuals would be bringing their offerings to be offered on the fire unto God. Sometimes it was for a sin offering. Sometimes it was for a thanksgiving offering. Sometimes it was for a praise offering. Behind that you will see there's what's called the brazen labor. That nothing is for a place of washing. The priests who ministered in the outer court could not go into the next section, which is called the holy place, without ceremonially washing themselves. And it would have been there that they would have performed that in order that they could go through a curtain, if you will, a covering into the holy place. It's a place where we find the, the table of bread, a showbread, this would not have been unfamiliar to them because they would have remembered, if you will, the time of when David went into that place and took of the showbread to feed his warriors that, that were uh, running, if you will. And, and so they would have known that place. And then in there also is the lampstand that would have been trimmed every night and every morning filled and making sure that the light continually burned in there. But there's also a place that as we walk closer to the third place, the most holy place, we find what is called the table of incense. And behind a massive curtain, there was the Ark of the Covenant, the dwelling place of God. Now, as the writer says in the book of Hebrews, we're not going to spend time to highlight all of these. He says, now's not the time to do that. He's drawing their attention and our attention to the fact that that which was once established as the form, if you will, of worship to God has all changed now. It's all changed. In fact, when you get to verses 6 through verse 10, he, he, the writer of Hebrews goes from the instruments of worship to the person who is supposed to lead the worship, speaking indirectly of the priests and the high priest. The priests ministered, if you will, in the outer court and in the most holy place, or the holy place, excuse me. They performed certain duties there, carried with them, if you will, sacrifices in the outer court, going into the holy place, and they're offering still the presence of God. But the most holy place was limited. It was limited to a group of individuals entitled the high priest. To just to draw your attention back, if you will, to Christmas time. Here we are almost six months from that. But anyway, and it's the place where you might remember Zechariah was at when an angel spoke to him concerning the birth of John the Baptist. Zechariah was a high priest. And he can only minister, you remember, he can only minister, these high priests can only minister until they're 50 years old and then they have to stop. That's what, one of the reasons why Jesus Christ 
is our faithful high priest because he's eternal. He won't ever stop their people. He will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And so this high priest position, as he would enter in once a year, what's called the Day of Atonement, it was there that he needed to take with him blood of bulls and goats, first of all, to offer sacrifice for his own sins, and then for the sins of the nation of Israel. It was one and done. It, it was a time that only once a year, but it continued for years, year after year after year. And all of this is happening because these first century believers are looking at this as this is what we need to go back to. This is our identity. We can relate to all of this. They were focusing on the external, if you will, but the writer of Hebrews focuses on the internal, on the internal. And as we, as Pastor Steve read the passage for us, the one thing that this could never, could never wipe clean was conscience. The conscience of man. I'm reminded, if you will, of a story that back in the 1970s, an individual by the name of David Watson, he was, had a successful ministry in the United Kingdom as he would go to university to university and he would share the gospel in his presentations. And one time he was speaking at an English university. And as the service ended that night, he was in the back and greeting individuals. And there was a, a young lady that came up to him. And let me read her description for you according to the words of David Watson. It says that he had talked at the end of one of his sessions to a young girl who had the reputation of being the toughest girl in our university. She had quite openly slept around. She had taken every drug that was available on campus. Outwardly, she didn't care about a single thing. And she flat out had zero interest in the notion of Jesus Christ and Christianity. And he goes on to tell the story of after speaking one evening at this English university, he was greeted at, by the people at the conclusion of it all, and this girl came up to him smoking a cigarette, and, he wa and she walked up to him and said, Reverend Watson, I came up to let you know that I just received Jesus Christ as my personal savior took a drag on the cigarette, turned around, and walked out. And Watson says, and I looked at her go, and I said to myself, time will tell. At the conclusion of the following evening's meetings, he was again greeting people. And in the course of greeting people, he encountered a young girl whom he did not immediately recognize. It was the girl from the previous evening. She actually looked radically different 
And she explained to Mr. Watson, since last evening, I have spent most of my time crying. Because in spite of all my toughness and all my hardness for all my life, I felt guilty as hell. He goes on to explain that this girl, what brought it all out was this amazing story of Jesus. She couldn't fathom that a God who was so absolutely pristine in holiness could love her. She couldn't fathom that a God would send her son Christ who lived a perfect life and died for her on the cross in order that she might have her sins forgiven. And the whole notion of Hebrews chapter 8 verse 12 which says, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more was an absolute mind-blowing situation that she could not begin to understand that God not only forgives sin, but he forgets it and cleanses us from a guilty conscience. That, dear people, is why the word of God comes. The word of God comes to troubled consciousness in order that it might be made clean. And when those individuals in our society would tell us to forget it, to blame other situations for it, to proclaim that it's not your fault, yet God has wonderfully given to us in our society and even here to us this morning in this church, a conscience that, that helps us to know and understand. It's sort of like a, a fear of fire. Recognizing that that can destroy, that can kill. It's a warning device in our lives that we're given in order to be able to come to some kind of grips as far as saying, woe is me. Who is there to help? And we proverbially drag on our cigarettes and walk away. Now we, when we finally come to chapter 10, we're going to discover something that is revolutionary. In verse 2, it says, speaking of the sacrifices that were repeated endlessly year after year, the writer says, if they could have made people perfect, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? But then he goes down to verse 22. And he says, but let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. But back in chapter 9, 
we're awakened to the fact that that which the first century Hebrew Christians were looking back to, they were really looking for comfort for a troubled conscience. They wanted to know, is there ever anything or anybody that can cleanse my conscience? There are, this particular chapter and this verses gives us, if you will, two things we need to pay attention to. First of all, a description from the past. Verses 1 to 5. This is past. It doesn't mean it wasn't righteous. It doesn't mean that it wasn't holy because it was given by a holy God to a nation that he called out for himself to be holy. That's not something new. They, they realize that even as Jesus Christ walked this earth, he said, the commandment is be holy as I am holy. They knew God instructed that, but what they couldn't do was hold up that end of the bargain. From a past experience, if you will, or a past, if you will, description they came to realize, or at least the author is hoping that they realize, that everything that they place their faith in is not going to help them. It is not going to cleanse their conscience. It will not give them peace. In fact, think about that. They would come day or week after week, maybe day after day, they would come to the curtain of the entrance to the outer court. And they would hand over the things that, that was subscribed to them to do. And a priest would take it. And yet even in that, they walked away from that situation, even not knowing if what they had given was successful. And then to realize that there was this individual who they weren't allowed to meet personally, who would go in once a year, they stood outside for 365 days wondering, is this any good? What's the sense of it all? We don't even get to see the chap that goes into the most holy place. And by the way, that's not a very safe position to be. For they realized that even as he went in, he was also a sinner, just like them. And he took in with him the blood of, of, of goats and bulls and hoping that what he's offering for his own sin would also be substitute, if you will, for their sins. And even if it was successful, even if he came out of that place, no one was sure that it was all good. They didn't have any idea of what was going on. They couldn't see in it. They didn't, they didn't understand. They were going through the motions. And yet the text tells us that all of that could not relieve their conscience. 
they were still carrying with them guilt. Because all of the food given, all of the ritual done, could not do what they were longing for it to do. But then the author in verses 6 to 10 now gives us an illustration for the present. As he talks about the priesthood, as he reflects to them that certain priests weren't allowed to go further. And so they had to rely on them too, wondering and hoping that their actions in the in the outer court and maybe even in the holy place was enough. They, they had no idea of what was even something that they could put their hope in, wondering if ever they would be relieved of their sin. You're either a lover or a hater of Shakespeare. I've not yet found individuals who sit on the fence of whether, yeah, no, no. You either love it or you don't. I have a complete work of William Shakespeare on my office shelf. I'm not saying I understand everything he writes about, but in the the play, the tragic play of Macbeth. There's a, an act in there, whether it's act five or act one, I, I, I don't quite remember right now, whether it's scene one, scene four. I, but I do know this, that in that particular play, Lady Macbeth is seen sitting, described sitting almost like at her vanity. We would dare say that She's preparing herself externally for the day. And as the ones that were there watching her and looking at her, one individual said to them, watch what she does with her hands. And they got closer and they could see her grinding her hands together. And she was repeating softly, but yet very strongly, the words... You places of darkness, forgive the word I'm repeating Shakespeare, may you be damned. All of the fragrance of Arabia cannot remove the stain. I smell the blood of lives that have gone. Oh, oh, oh. The despair in that play, Shakespeare being a master at drawing our attention to an issue Lady Macbeth could not and did not have a clean conscience. All the fragrance of Arabia cannot cover it up. That's what these Hebrew Christians, though I'm sure they were not quoting Shakespeare, 
but they found themselves standing outside going, oh, oh, oh. What is there to be for hope? Then the writer of Hebrews masterfully introduces the hope when he says in verse 11, but I'm going to paraphrase, but Jesus showed up. But Jesus came. And he goes on to highlight the superiority of Jesus Christ as our high priest. Not only just focusing on the fact of who he is, but what he did and what he continues to do. May I just remind you one more time as we look over these verses that it says these, he entered the most holy place once for all time. And he entered there not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own. And he entered into, not that was makeshift man put together, but he entered into the very holy place that is in heaven. And is there that he offered himself, perfect as he is, And his shed blood, he didn't take in other blood. He took in his own. And it was there that even as we today, even now, we recognize that not only does that blood cleanse us from all unrighteousness, but it also washes our conscience. Too often, we engage ourselves into what can we do to make our salvation better. The story is told of an evangelist who, in the early 1900s, would travel around and pitch his tent, if you will, and share the gospel. Weekend after weekend, he moved from one place to another. And he had just finished another weekend. And a young boy came up to him as he was taking down the stakes of the tent and putting them into a bag, getting ready to move to the next place. And this young boy said, Sir, what do I need to do to be saved? The evangelist He didn't hardly look up at the young boy and he said these words, it's too late. The boy being confused, he said, do you mean because I didn't make last night's meeting? And the evangelist said, no, no. But someone has already paid the price. There's nothing you can do but believe but believe. That is the mantra, if you will. Hidden, obscuredly, I understand that in some of the passages, but that is the mantra of the book of Hebrews. 
to believe. It's sort of that, that magic word that we can't quite grasp a hold of. We wonder what it all entails. We, we struggle to really come to an, a, a final understanding of what that means. And yet, literally, we make more of it than what the scriptures do. For the word believe means trust. Trusting in that which Jesus Christ has done. That there's nothing else that can be done because he paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. We have another journey to take, Lord willing, next week as we try to begin at verse 11 again and get to the end of the chapter. But I encourage you for homework to maybe read those verses and allow them to soak into your mind and allow the Holy Spirit of God to use those verses to remind you of the superiority of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. For he's worthy of it all. I began by reminding us that we all have a problem with conscience. And I neglected to tell you that there's hope. In Christ Jesus, all he asks of you to do is to believe, to trust. And don't try to push your conscience off on external circumstances. Allow it to mull around to bring you to that place whereby you fall at the cross of Christ and say, oh, oh, oh. And what all the fragrance of Arabia cannot do, the blood of Christ has already done. And all he asks is come, believe. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Lord, this is a difficult passage. The difficulty is not in reading it. The difficulty is facing the reality of our conscience. I am so glad, O oh Lord God, that you do not desire for us to cry out like Lady Macbeth. Utter the words, oh, 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 in all despair and wondering, is there an answer? And we find that, but when Jesus came, Thank you, Father, for sending your Son for us.
And the availability of that is free even this morning. And I would ask you, O Lord God, that there may be someone here this morning who's struggling with conscience. Wondering if there's any hope. Wondering if there's any help. What does all of this life mean? I ask, O God, that they would come and talk to me or talk to Pastor Steve, talk to one of our elders with just the question, how can I trust Christ? And we'd be more than happy to show them from your word. So unto you, O Lord God, we commit this time, this day, these people, that you would do a mighty work in our lives. That we would get our, our sense off of external and begin to dwell in the internal, which is wonderfully eternal. To you we ask these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.